A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we have observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. Other translations, worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child of Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O glorious, holy, almighty God, you always pity the many wanderings of failing humanity. And for this reason, you guided the Magi to your sacred cradle by the light of a star, that you might enlighten all who are walking in their own errors, but with the desire of knowing you. Enlighten us also with burning love for you, that we who already know you by your gracious illumination may cling to you forever. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. It seems that my pulpit tradition for the past few years has been to preach on the characters surrounding the birth of Christ, sometimes before Christmas, sometimes after Christmas. I previously preached on Simeon, Anna, Mary and Joseph, and even the child Jesus. If our new pastor in charge continues this tradition of assigning my sermon at this time, I'm going to be I'm going to need to be creative when I run out of the characters to preach on. So for this sermon, I've been led to preach and focus on the biblical magi who have been with us since Christmas decorations came up. These guys over there. They are more commonly known as the three wise men or the three kings of the Orient. They are pictured as camel-riding, turban-wearing, or, as depicted here, crown-wearing individuals with an aura of mystique. But as culturally distant as they seem from us, we who love the Lord Jesus have something in common with them. We are all fellow sojourners making a journey to this side of heaven to eventually meet the Lord Jesus. And I believe that the wise men, these magi, have something to teach us about the journey. I'll be partitioning our time with the Magi through three sections framed by questions that we should answer as we explore the text. Firstly, who are they? Then next, what were they seeking? And finally, what did they discover? 
by way of introduction, let's try to answer the first question. Who are they? The biblical magi have always been a point of fascination for me as a Bible reader. Some of you may have discerned from reading the text that there is actually very little biblical data surrounding the magi. And the more we read the text in its various translations and compare them with our Christian tradition, the more questions we have. Why are they sometimes called magi or wise men or kings? How many of them were there? Why do we most commonly think that there are three of them? Firstly, their titles. Are they magi, wise men, or kings? In the Bible, only the Gospel of Matthew records this visit, so we can only know as much as Matthew describes them. Now this, as we bring up the screen right here, is the Greek text for Matthew chapter 2 and for verse 1, which tells us their title. Now, all you Greek scholars out there, we can read this together on one, two... I'm kidding. I will underline for you the word in question, which is right down at the bottom in the third line, Magoi. That's where we get our title for, that's why the translation is Magi, because in the Greek text, they are introduced as Mahoi by Matthew. Now, we also know that there are more than one. There is more than one Magus, which is the singular for Magi. There's more than one, because if it's singular, you will see Mahos. But we don't see Mahos, we see Mahoi. So we know there's more than one. However, we don't know the exact number. It is not given in the text. All we know is more than one. Could be two, could be three, could be 20, could be 200. But Christian tradition has landed on three because of the presentation of the gifts to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Which is where we get our three wise men or three kings of the Orient. Does this mean that the Magi were magicians and sorcerers, those who are commonly denounced and condemned in scripture for their dark arts. Not so. Although the definition of machos does include magicians and sorcerers, the word also encompasses highly learned men who study the sciences of their day, which is why some translations correctly refer to them as wise men. In today's world, they might have been called scholars or scientists. So this clears up magi and wise men. But what about kings? It's a bit far off, isn't it? This is where many years of Christian tradition have attempted to fill in the gaps. The early church made a link between Isaiah 60 and the Magi's visit. Consider these words. Nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Quite a striking similarity to our text this morning, isn't it? And so, a theory from the early church emerged that the Magi were kings. Could they have been literal kings? We simply don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what we can infer is that they must have been from a higher social status. They could afford the expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they were important enough to have been granted an audience with King Herod. Nobody can just go up to the prime minister and demand an audience. Finally, they could also afford to make a trip of great distance from their home, a location that Matthew also doesn't disclose to us. All he says is they are from the east. Now, Jewish readers encountering this phrase from the east will associate the areas north of Arabia, Syria, and Mesopotamia as the east. If Persia and Babylon are the boundaries of Jewish geography in Jesus' day, we can estimate that the Magi could have traveled anywhere between 700 to 1,300 kilometers. Now, 
Let that sink in for a bit. A thousand three hundred kilometers on camelback. Even if you had the fastest camels, that's still a journey needing anywhere between twenty to forty days of travel. It is a journey of great risk, carrying around all those expensive treasures with a chance of encountering marauders, and mind you, no travel insurance in those days. It is a journey of great sacrifice, a sacrifice of time away from home, a sacrifice of income and opportunities. I think the Magi would have been working-class scientists, scholars, or advisors. If they were Persian Magi, the highest class of Magi, they would have been political office holders, being the king's advisors. To leave the king's side was a very risky affair. You will recall many years before, Nehemiah, as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, not even a Magi, just a cupbearer, he was terrified to bring up the subject of leaving his post from the palace to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls because it could mean instant death. And now, these Magi making a journey to worship a foreign king? That is seditious. And yet, these Magi made the trip. They risked everything without concrete confirmation. All they had was what they could observe through the cosmic phenomena unfolding before them and what they could, they could read about in the old dusty books. Now, didn't we, as Christians, start out this journey with Christ the same way? I think it's safe to assume that each and every one of us here encountered Christ in a deeply profound way. Maybe you were invited to an event organized by church. Maybe someone invited you to their cell group. Someone invited you to a Sunday service. And yet others, some of you would have been exposed to Christ in a Christian public rally. Nonetheless, you couldn't explain the strange phenomena happening in your heart. And when you came to church, all of this the singing, the worship, the reading of scripture, all of this made sense to you. And this dusty old book that you had in your hands, it seemed to know you inside out. It spoke to you every, every bit of your human condition. And you eventually gave your life to Christ. But it's not a journey without sacrifice. For some of us who became Christians as students, we had to endure our parents constantly berating us for spending so much time in church when we could have spent the time studying, maybe even being accused of being brainwashed by the church. For some of us who became Christians as young working adults, when we hear the call of God to use our professional skills for lesser work like nonprofit organizations, social enterprises, or even full-time Christian ministry amongst us, we had to endure society's punishment of lesser opportunities for advancement, lower pay, and the disdain from anyone who hears our story that we wasted our education. If this has been your journey, the Magi teach us with the first point. Continue your journey to Christ through sacrifice, for he is worthy. About 30 years later, Jesus would address his disciples with these words of comfort, and I will share them with you here now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We've covered the Magi and who they are. Let's move on to the next question. What were they seeking? Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? On the surface, you'd expect a king to be found where kings live, a palace. This is why I think the Magi came to the logical conclusion that they should be looking for Jesus in Jerusalem, where Herod had constructed the most magnificent palace that Judea had ever seen. The Magi had started their journey following the star, no doubt a supernatural cosmic phenomena, but based on their human deduction, they got the final detail wrong. When Herod consulted the scribes, this was the answer given. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. This was the prophecy as recorded in Micah chapter 5. Aha! The answer! Let's carry on. Alright, not so fast. I think there are deeper dynamics at play behind the text and several interesting observations that we can make. Firstly, the chief priests and scribes came back with the answer in no time at all. They probably knew this based on their memory of scripture. Remember, scripture memory was an important part of Jewish culture. Young boys had to memorize various sections of the Torah for their bar mitzvah. What more, priests and scribes? Secondly, look at verse 9. When they had heard the king, they, the Magi, set out. The Magi set out. No mention of an accompanying party of the priests and the scribes. The people who were the most knowledgeable, who knew their Bibles inside out, who were such figures of scriptural authority, they didn't follow the Magi. And it's not like they didn't know why the Magi were there. All Jerusalem knew that the Magi were looking for the child who has been born king of the Jews. Not one of them had the curiosity to ask, hey, maybe we should check this out too. I think what happened was this. In their arrogance, the priests and the scribes weren't prepared to be upstaged by foreigners. Of course, the foreigners had to be wrong. They don't know the scriptures like we do. And this arrogance would cost them dearly. They were completely missed out on meeting the very Messiah that they had purported to know about so well. Now contrast this with what happened immediately after with the Magi. They, the Magi, set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east until it stopped over the place where the child was. I think there is a deeper spiritual principle at work here. You see, it's one thing to read the word. It's quite another to know the living word. Now, we all can name at least one person we've encountered before in our lifetime who was an atheist, who scoffed at the very idea of divine, yet he seemed to know the Bible more than you. How is that possible? How can you read the Bible and not be changed? This is a very difficult question, but I think part of the answer lies in how we approach the Bible. If we approach the Bible with intellectual arrogance, having a know-it-all attitude to prove someone wrong, being puffed up with knowledge, God does not respond to that. 
Habakkuk 1.5 in the Septuagint says, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that scoffers will come in the last days of scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God doesn't respond to intellectual arrogance. But what about the Magi? The Magi had heard the word from Micah in the prophecy. They had a heart of anticipation, ready to meet Jesus. And with this approach of intellectual integrity, not arrogance, God responded. Whatever the cosmic phenomena was, it became crystal clear to the Magi and helped them them lead the way to Christ. But knowledgeable atheists aren't the only ones who can be arrogant. We can too as Christians. We are immensely blessed with our access to Bibles, Bible study tools, historical documentaries, even original language causes that can give us a breadth and depth of information. And like the priests and scribes that Herod consulted, we can have every answer at the ready, except the information stays up here. It doesn't go down and transform you here. And what does, and what do we use this information for? We draw our theologically sharpened swords, of course, and do battle. And we end up fighting amongst ourselves. You have this opinion. Let me give you a hundred reasons why you are wrong. Ayah, this is so simple. You still don't know? You listen to ABC band? Ayah, this song has such bad theology. Let me introduce you to XYZ band. They're better than ABC band. Now, stop, stop, just stop. Paul writes in Romans 14, Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. How then do we prevent the weaponization of Scripture? Let me share one of the ways I do my daily devotion. It's an app called Pray As You Go, which features daily prayer and scripture meditation infused with spiritual music. Now, what I found very useful, and of course, if you search Pray As You Go on Google, this is the website that you'll find. It's also an app on the phone that you can download. They're not paying me to say this, so no endorsements here. Now, what I... Where was I? Now, what I found very useful is the strong links between the various facets of spirituality. Scripture is not read in isolation. Instead, it is undergirded by prayer, interweaved with meditation and reflection, and glued together with music that helps you focus on God. I have found that reading scripture in this dynamic way prepares my heart to meet with God, and I have had encounters with the Holy Spirit far deeper this way than with my theology textbooks. As a quick aside, Pray As You Go is a wonderful way of conducting family devotional, especially when I'm with my twins, Jonathan and Krista. Now, they, they are propped on my lap, and what I do is click on play, and the narrator will lead the meditation for the day. Now, my books on pastoral theology, marriage and family, they might give me the knowledge needed to raise my children in a biblically balanced way. But I found that only by reading the scriptures together with them in an atmosphere of worship, does my love for them grow? And consequently, 
I draw closer to God. Indeed, the Magi teach us with a second point. Continue your journey to Christ through the scriptures with humility. He will find you. We've covered who the Magi are and we covered what they are seeking. Let's ask the final question. What did they discover? In verse 10 and 11, we read this. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Christine, my wife, recently recounted a story from her youth. Her parents took her to uh, her parents and uh, took her and her sister to the zoo, and they travelled by car. On the highway en route to the zoo, there will be traffic signs like, as follows that showed the zoo logo, an arrow pointing forward, and the distance left. Now, every time Christy and her sister saw one of these traffic signs, they knew that they were approaching and getting closer to the zoo. And with each passing sign, the excitement and anticipation would be building. Then they would have shouts of joy and jubilation. Now, as soon as I say this, I think I might have to wear earplugs when the time comes for me to drive the whole family to the zoo. Children cannot help but express their big feelings of anticipation. Are we there yet? One minute later, are we there yet? 16 seconds later, barely 45 seconds later, are we there yet? Our human condition is somehow wired for it. And I believe the Magi experienced a holy anticipation a Christ-shaped longing that will only be, only be filled when they reach their destination and complete their mission. I'm certain you felt this too, this burning desire to be in Jesus' presence. Maybe you felt it tangibly in your younger days when you couldn't wait for Saturday to come around so you could go for youth ministry and then Sunday morning in the, youth, in the Sunday service to belt your lungs out. Maybe you had nights of prolonged one-on-one sessions with Jesus as you found a corner in the home with just an acoustic guitar, and you worshipped and prayed the night away, unaware of the hours that rolled on by. But then, life got in the way. Studies, job applications, work, family, kids. So many excuses not to spend time with Jesus. And over time, you normalize this new routine. Prayer and devotion, they've become secondary. God understands, you say. He knows I don't have the time. And you let your heart harden and grow cold as the days roll on by. Good news, as we have encountered in the Advent reading today, is that God is patient. And there is a way to feel that holy anticipation again. The Magi teach us that the journey to Christ requires sacrifice. Spend less time on the mindless things like scrolling through Facebook or social media, uh, watching Netflix. Instead, fill your mind on the things that activate your senses to God. Pastor Emmanuel last week gave a very practical tip of listening to Christian music on your commute to work over the car stereo, over your iPod. The journey needs the scriptures. God has wired us in such a way that when we dive into his word with humility, we will encounter the living word, his son. Alistair Begg, a Scottish theologian, summarizes this as follows. There is no way to God except through the Christ of God, who is delivered to us in the word of God. And what do we discover when we encounter this Christ? Like the Magi, there is nothing to do 
except fall down on our knees and worship. There is a story of a statue of Christ in Copenhagen, Denmark, made by the sculptor Carl Albert Fabelson. For those of you who don't know, when making a marble statue, sculptors will often make a clay model first as a reference so that they can refer to it as they make the final product. Favelson's original clay model of Christ was supposed to have arms outstretched, raised high in gesturing command, and head held high in triumph. Favelson finished the sculpture and left it, he finished the clay sculpture and left it to harden over a few days. However, because of heavy rain, dampness had invaded his studio, and the figure changed entirely. Instead of the head held high, it had bent downwards, and the arms, they had fallen low. Favelson felt his statue of Christ was beyond repair. He grabbed a hammer and was ready to demolish the statue, but he just couldn't do it. With a pang of remorse, he fled from the room, and for some time, he couldn't bear to go back to it. But when he finally did, accompanied by a friend, they opened the door and they stood in awe. Bathed in light, the lowered arms no longer depicted defeat. They saw in them the truth of God's compassion sympathetic arms encircling the sorrowful and the needy. The head was now bowed with contrite countenance as if to say, I understand your struggles. This was no defeated Christ. This was a compassionate saviour, a saviour who knows you and your struggles, a saviour who will walk this path of life with you, having walked it before and conquered death. This is the Christ we worship. But the story doesn't end here. From afar, you will certainly see the inviting hands of Christ. But you will only be able to see his eyes if you come near, kneel, and look up. If you are feeling distant from God, do as the Magi did. Find God. Seek him out. Come near to him. And surrender to him in worship. Then, as you look up, you will look into the face of Christ. And thus we land at our final point. Continue your journey to Christ through surrender. He is with you. In conclusion, the Magi came to meet Jesus with the treasures of earth in their hands. I believe after this encounter of worship, they will leave with the treasure of heaven in their hearts. Their journey helps us reflect on our ongoing journey, not just to Christ in the new heaven eventually, but with the Christ right here and now. We continue our journey through sacrifice, fully aware of the cost. Let us recognize that having met Jesus, we have died to the old self and have now a new birth, the death of our old barren life and the birth of our new fruitful life in Christ. We continue our journey through the scriptures with the promise of his loving presence when we come to him in humility, having washed away all pretense and arrogance. We also continue our journey through surrender. The Christ we worship is not one who subjugates with fear, but bids us to come with open and welcome arms to draw near to him and behold his face. Can you see the morning star? Be courageous and follow him, drawing comfort and strength that he is with you. Let us pray.
Let us take a moment to focus our spiritual eyes on the morning star. Let us see with spiritual eyes where the Christ is leading us. Let us pray. We are drawn to your feet in worship, your creation facing its creator, our hearts laid bare by your light, humbly asking for your mercy. We come to you as a people in need of assurance and forgiveness. We come to you as a people in need of healing and wholeness. We come to you dependent upon your love. Holy Christ, star of the morning, draw us close and fold us in your arms. Holy Spirit, fill us that we might reflect your light within this dark world to speak your word with boldness and to draw others to your feet. We ask this through your dear Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name, almighty name we pray. Amen.